0: Thank you, Mark and Michelle. Please turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter six. We're continuing our series, our ever the summer that never ends series on, on the family, God's will for the family. We've been looking at the relationship between husbands and wives. We looked at the relationship of children to their parents. And this morning we're looking at a parent's relationship with their child in Ephesians chapter six verse 4, and if you would please stand with me as we read God's Word together, I'll be reading verses 1 through 4 of Ephesians chapter 6. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes this, "'Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, this is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land.'" Then verse 4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. You may be seated. Allow me to pray for us as we continue our time of, of worship this morning. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful to you for your blessings in our life. We are grateful that we can be here this morning. We're grateful that you've provided us this, these facilities to worship in together as we worship you. Father, we think of the, the, the awesome task you've entrusted to us as a church, that the task of bringing up children and the nurture and instruction of you, and we pray that we would be faithful in that stewardship. I pray for especially new parents as they endeavor to be obedient to you in this area. We think of the the Davidsons who have just returned with a a new little one, and we're so grateful to you for the miracle of, of adoption that allows us to bring children into our home and to care for them and provide for them, children that we would not otherwise have had the privilege of, of caring for, and we pray that you would help our church to be a church that continually, as we think about your instruction here, that we, we continually be focused on meeting the needs of the orphan as well. Pray that you'd bless our time of study of your word this morning. We pray this in your son Jesus's name. Amen. Growing up, I would sometimes express displeasure with my father concerning the type of discipline that I was undergoing. And when I would express displeasure with my father, he had a saying that he would sometimes give to me. It went something like this. He'd say, son, I don't care. I don't care if you like me whenever you grow up. I'm going to make a man out of you. Now, I think he was exaggerating. I know he was exaggerating, but his, his basic point was this, and the point came through loud and clear. Look, my educational philosophy, son, is not based upon what brings you immediate happiness. This is not a democracy. I'm not trying to, to curry your favor and discipline. My educational philosophy, my, my strategy here, is to produce a man at the end of this. The ancient Greek cities of, of Athens and, and Sparta had radically different educational philosophies. If you know anything about uh, ancient Greece, you know that the Athenians were focused on training children to be good citizens. They wanted to produce people who could participate in the democracy. They wanted to produce citizens that could defend Athens in time of war and promote Athenian peace as well. And so an Athenian education was designed to produce young men that were well-trained and in philosophy and, and rhetoric, and yet also had the ability to, to fight. And so an Athenian education would include rhetoric and would inc- include uh, philosophy courses, but it would also include gymnastics and, and wrestling. Now, on the other end of the spectrum was Sparta. If the Athenians were in, introduced in producing good citizens, Athenian, or Spartans wanted to produce warriors And a Spartan education was vastly different than the education that an Athenian youth would undergo. In Sparta, they took the the concept of tough love to new levels. A Spartan mother would take her newborn child and and bathe it in wine to see if it could survive that. An Athenian mother, or a Spartan mother, would take her her son and and send him off to boot camp at age seven, and the children there, the, the young men there, would be underfed They'd be forced to survive by, by stealing and, and cunning and, and thievery. A Spartan mother, uh, Plutarch tells us, once told her son as he went off to battle, she gave him his shield, and the Spartan mother told her son, A come back with your shield or on it. That is, come back in victory or dead. Plutarch tells us another Spartan mother, as all those around her were mourning the loss of her son in combat refused to shed any tears. She said, I mourn cowards. This man, my son and Sparta's son, was a warrior. Athens and Sparta had different philosophies, different goals of what they were trying to produce in children, and those goals that they had shaped what they did with their children. And so my question for us as a church, this morning is this. What is our educational philosophy? And parents, let me start with you. Uh, mom and dad, as God has entrusted you with the task of, of raising these children, what's your end goal? What are you trying to produce in this child? What is going to, to let you know you've achieved what you desired to achieve in raising your children? Uh, perhaps your goal is to produce a, a great uh, academician, And so what you're doing right now with your children is you're, you, you made sure they were enrolled in the best preschools and they've had tutoring and you're, you're listening to classical music and you're doing all of these things in order to, to nurture a, a student that, that has great academic potential. Or maybe your goal as a parent is, is to produce a, a great athlete And so you've been involved in in t-ball and soccer and basketball and football or whatever other sports from from, from day one with your children, and and your goal is to produce a a great athlete. Or maybe your goal is to produce what society would call a well-rounded child. And so you're trying to to make your your child exposed to a whole bunch of different things, and and your calendar is just chock full with with things that you're involved in because you don't want your child to miss out on anything. What is your goal? Then I'd ask us as a church as well, what's our educational philosophy? You say, well, I, I have no educational philosophy. I don't, I don't have any kids. That's someone else's responsibility now. No, no. We as a church must have an educational philosophy. Each of us are culpable for the type of children that are being produced in our church. You imagine Jesus, if when, the deci- when the children came to him, he told them, hey, you know what, Kids. Uh, I'm not your mommy and daddy. (laughs) That's mom and dad's responsibility. You know, what did Jesus say? Jesus said, let the little children come to me. We as a church must have a philosophy of educating children, of training children to be members of the community of faith. Uh, My words primarily this morning are going to be directed to moms and dads. We're going to look at what God's word says here in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 4, and there's going to be a primary instruction to them, but I don't want any of us to, to say, you know what, this is just a moms and dads who have kids at home right now. Uh, the truths of God's word here in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 4 apply to all of us. Moms and dads, though especially, hear what I think God is telling us in his word is that our primary goal as a parent, our primary goal as a parent is to produce within our children, to, to nurture within our children, a heart that loves God. First and foremost, beyond any other goal that we might possibly have for our precious little ones, our primary goal is to do everything we possibly can to nurture within our children a heart that loves God. Our primary goal is not to produce a brilliant child. Our primary goal is not to produce a a terrific athlete. Our primary goal is not to have this well-rounded child. Our primary goal is to do everything we possibly can to foster within our children a heart that loves Jesus Christ. All of their goals pale, all of their goals pale in comparison to that one passion we must have as parents. Now imagine if someone were to eavesdrop in your house, someone would kind of sneak in and look at your calendar book. If they were to take a look at your calendar book and kind of flip through the pages and see what you're doing with your children, what sense would they come away with as as their belief concerning your educational philosophy? If they were to eavesdrop in your conversations you're having with your children, what would their perception be concerning what you're trying to instill in the heart of your child? Again, God's word here in verse 4 of Ephesians chapter 6 is telling us that our our primary goal as parents must be to foster within our children a heart that loves Jesus Christ. I want to do two things in our time this morning. Uh, the first thing I want to do is just look at the first part of Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. We're going to look at this verse over a two-week period. And we're going to first just look at the, the negative injunction here. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. And as we look at this verse, the first thing I want us to do this morning is just to make some observations about what Paul is saying here. And then the second thing that I want us to do, and this is that if you're taking notes in your bulletin, you'll see this here. The second thing I want us to do is just make some some observations about ways that parents can be provocative. And the goal isn't to be as provocative as possible. The goal is to identify some things that would cause us to be provoking our children instead of nurturing them to love the Lord. Let's first just make a couple observations here about what Paul is saying here in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, as it says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Uh, first of all, remember the context. Remember, Ephesians is broken into two sections. The first three chapters of Ephesians are all about how a person is called to be a part of the community of faith. We're called to be a part of this community of faith. Uh, chapters 4 through 6 of Ephesians are about how we conduct ourselves now that we've become members of the community of faith. And there's a word that appears over and over again in Ephesians 4, Ephesians chapters four, five and six. And that word is translated in some Bibles live." In other translations, it's walk. And the idea is, here's how you walk or live as a believer, here's how you conduct yourself. We're in a section of Ephesians that began in Ephesians chapter five that deals with how to walk wisely in relationships, how to walk wisely in relationships. And what Paul has done is, if you've noticed this, is he's addressed two parties in a relationship. And he starts off with the subordinate party. So he talked to wives first, and then he talked to children first, and then he talked, he's going to talk to slaves first. And then he addresses uh, the other party, husbands, fathers, parents, masters. And then he'll give an injunction to each party, here's what you need to do in this relationship, and then he'll give them a motivation, and here's why you want to do this, and, and here's how you do this. And then he's also going to tell each party, look, ultimately, in your relationship, you're not accountable to one another, although you are. Your ultimate accountability is to God. So wives, submit yourselves to the husbands as to the Lord. It's, it's ultimately a, a heavenly submission that she's being called to. Here, children, obey your parents in the Lord. So subordinate parties addressed Children have been addressed. Now he turns his attention to the fathers. Why does he address the fathers here? Why does he say fathers? I think that he has both parents in view. Notice that earlier in the chapter he says, Honor your father and mother. And so when he addresses father, he's not omitting the mother. This term that he uses for father could also be used to refer to both parents. But I think what he's trying to do is, is remind children of the, the hierarchy, the parents and children of the authority structure in a family relationship. In the Jewish culture, remember that a father had almost complete control over his children. A father, a Jewish father, could sell his children into slavery. A Jewish, Jewish father and mother could take their children before the elders and, and ask that this rebellious child be, be stoned. And so a, a Jewish father had a great deal of authority over his children. Now, in the culture in which Paul is writing, the, the Roman culture, the Greco-Roman culture, uh, the authority of a father was even greater. In fact, the authority of a father never waned in the sense that the, the father always had authority over his child. You could become the magistrate of the city, and your dad would still have authority over you. That could kind of lead to some awkward situations. You know? you know, I'm the magistrate of the city. I'm going to raise taxes. No, you're not, son. The dad remained an authoritative figure authoritative figure in the life of his child for their entire life. Paul is saying here look fathers fathers yes you you have this authority but he says do not provoke your children to anger. Uh, do not provoke your children to anger that that phrase provoked angers in the original language one word. We saw it in Ephesians we saw the the, uh, the word in Ephesians chapter 4 as well, as it talks about don't let the sun go down on your anger. This type of anger that he's referring to is this type of anger that's like this constant irritant, constant anger, this the seething rage. He says, look, uh, fathers, uh, your goal is to nurture within your children a heart that loves the Lord. That's going to be the last half of the verse we look at in two weeks. Don't do those things, listen to this, don't do those things that would cause you to not be able to accomplish your task. Is that enough negatives in that sentence? Fathers, your goal is to pursue hearts in your children that love God. Don't do those things that would sway you off that target. Don't do those things that would veer you away from what you're trying to accomplish in the lives of your children. Don't provoke your children to wrath. His emphasis here is on parental culpability, Parents, you are culpable for the things that you do in your child's life that might cause them to be, to have this this, this provocation to anger. Let me give a couple little caveats here, though. First of all, kids uh, here, who are here this morning, remember we talked about a couple weeks ago your obligation to obey mom and dad, right? So don't go home today and say, mom and dad, you're kind of starting to provoke me to anger. I don't want to. You know, I just feel bad for you guys. I want you to have a right relationship with God. And, boy, I just kind of feel this anger coming up. You better be careful. Um, that's not, kids, you're still culpable for God, before God, for what you do in your life, okay? If, if you have uh, sin issues, you're the one who's ultimately accountable for God, okay? You alone are going to, to answer to God in your own life for what you do. Parents, here's also something I'd say is kind of a, of a caveat. Uh, sometimes parents have asked me, they said, look, i uh, Daniel, you know, I asked, my, I asked little Timmy to go clean his room, and he got really angry at me. I don't want to provoke him to anger. Maybe I shouldn't ask him to clean his room anymore. No, that's not provoking to anger. What, what the problem is, your child has this anger, and it's just kind of being demonstrated by a simple command, a simple uh, exhortation to your child. That's not what Paul's talking about here. Uh, what Paul is saying is, look, parents, there are some things that you can do that provoke your children to anger. Your goal is to foster a love for God, a love for Jesus Christ, and there are things that you can do that prevent that heart from being fostered. Be careful not to foster those things that will provoke your children to wrath. That's kind of some observations here about this part of verse 4. Now let's talk about provocative parents, okay? Let's list some characteristics here of provocative parents that I, I think will help us as we as we consider how we can obey Paul's instruction here. So five things, and, and uh, this list could go on uh, much longer, but let's just talk about five things this morning that I believe uh, provocative parents do. Parents who are, instead of nurturing within their children, a heart that loves God, things that parents that are, are, are doing that cause a child to be provoked to anger. First thing, number one, a provocative parent, provocative parents teach their children to live self centered lives provocative parents teach their children to live self-centered lives a couple of components of this let me just list three components of what it looks like to teach a child to live a self-centered life the first thing a parent does in training their children to live a self-centered life is create a child-centered home Ephesians 6 here is very clear about the hierarchical structure. In fact, take into account Ephesians chapter 5 and what's supposed to be taking place. In a home, you're supposed to have mom and dad in this close, one-flesh relationship, and then kids are supposed to fall underneath that parental relationship of mom and dad. That Mom and dad are one-flesh. Kids come underneath mom and dad in that structure of authority. A child-centered home, instead of creating this, this uh, uh, instead of having mom and dad be the primary relationship in that home, a child-centered home looks at the child and says, what does this child want? And that child becomes the primary focus of both dad and mom. They're both, uh, they're both directing all their attentions, all their energies into, into whatever it is that child wants. And so this child directs their schedule, the child directs what they, where they worship, the child directs everything about their lives. And a child in that environment begins to think, "Huh, you know what? The life is about me." <laughs> if you have had small children, they've, they've probably done this, or if you were, if you are a small child, you've probably done this to mom and dad. You find mom and dad, mom and dad are hugging or something in the kitchen, and little kid comes in and kind of you know, comes in between mom and dad, and is right there trying separating mom and dad, but, but having a good time. And what the child wants is he wants to feel that, that enveloped love, and it's, it's, it's a fine thing. But here's the problem. Sometimes that happens figuratively. child weaves in between mom and dad, and instead of mom and dad cleaving that one-flesh relationship, mom and dad are focused on the child. It's not wrong to have a desire to care for your children, but where it becomes wrong is when that, the whole family, the whole family structure begins revolving around whatever it is that, that child wants or children want. Parent may think that they're being very loving, but really they're teaching their children a very dangerous lesson. Again, three components of teaching a child to live a self-centered life: one, uh, you create this child-centered home. The second thing you do here is you you foster within your children a, a love for the things of the world. You can write down this is a verse to, to kind of consider: First John chapter two, verses fifteen through seventeen, that that talk about how the love for God and the love for the world cannot coexist. And so a parent that's teaching their child to live a self-centered life is, is training them about, the, about how to view material possessions. Maybe mom and dad work long hours, and instead of spending time with their children, they're spending time at a job and trying to make money. They're making bad decisions with their finances. They're, they're buying their kids all the, the best things in life, or they're, they have a real focus on the material world. And so a, a parent is training their child in those situations to, to have a great love for the things of this world. parent may value uh, all sorts of worldly things. It's not bad to have nice things. It's not bad to pursue uh, certain pursuits in life, but a parent whose heart is focused on those things, the things of this world, is training their children that life is about them as well. Another way that a parent teaches their child to live a self-centered life is they refuse to respect authority. A parent may come home, talk about what a dumb guy their boss is. Man, my boss, what, man, if I were in charge, that company would really, really take off. They speed, you know, they, they do certain things in, in, in regards to, to police officers or say certain things about other authority figures in their life. A child looks at how mom and dad treat the authorities that God has placed over them and learn something about life. You know, Peter tells Peter tells the, his, his writers in 1 Peter 2.13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution given among men. Be subject to the Lord's sake for every human institution given among men. And a child looks at the way mom and dad react to authority and learn something about life and the purpose of life and the purpose of authority. Mom and dad, you can also... Train your children to live a self-centered life in regards to authority by how you talk about the authorities that God has placed in your children's life. One of the most astonishing things to me when, when I go to sporting events is to be sitting next to parents who start screaming at officials. I think, man, what do they teach? Even if, even if the, the call in the field is just blatantly wrong, what is this parent teaching their child about how to view authority figures? Your child comes home and talks about some mean thing Mr. Smith did at, at school. Oh, what, do, what does that teach your child whenever you respond, yeah, that guy is such a dummy. You know He should know that precious little Timmy is not going to make any mistakes. Or what does it do whenever your child starts talking about your coach and you start talking about how the, the coach should be playing my child more? There are ways that we, on a daily basis, as we respond to the authority figures that God has placed, in our child's life, there are things that we were teaching them about how to view authority. Now, guys, here's why it's so dangerous. When we're talking about provoking a child to wrath. James chapter 4 tells us that unfulfilled desire, unfulfilled desire is the, the root cause of anger. And so you've taken your child and you've told your child, life is about you. Life is about you and what you want and what you desire. The things of this world are are wonderful things, and you should desire the things of this world. And if there's an authority figure that gets in your way or doesn't see things the way you see it, that's someone standing in your way, and, and you should disregard that authority. And what you're doing is you are setting your child on a collision course with God as they have their unfulfilled desires come into conflict sometimes with what god's desires for their life they've learned that life is all about them and the inevitable result is anger and wrath our goal as parents our goal as a church should be to produce within a, within a child an understanding of authority an understanding that life isn't about me it's about worship and service of god and as I look at mom and dad, I see that, that they're in subject to the authorities that God has placed in their life. And I, I see that mom and dad, sure, they, they, they pursue their work unto, as unto the Lord, but, but ultimately it's about God in their life. And they have a passion for him. And that passion that you have for God is communicated to your children. Provocative parents teach their children to live self-centered life, lives. Secondly, Uh, provocative parents, provocative parents are unloving in their discipline. Provocative parents are unloving in their discipline. Turn to Hebrews chapter 12, if you would. Just more towards the end of your Bible. If you're in Ephesians, just a couple books to the right. Hebrews chapter 12. Parents, we have a wonderful model for discipline as we look at, at our Heavenly Father in Hebrews chapter 12, this is a passage that I, I look to frequently as I'm, I'm asking for wisdom from God about how to parent my children. Here's what God says in verse 5 of Hebrews chapter 12. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, and, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives." It is for discipline, verse 7, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Our heavenly father has the desire to produce certain things in our life. And in order to produce those those things in our, our lives, God is at times disciplining us, There's a difference between discipline and punishment and wrath. It's discipline. It's nurturing us. It's training us in order to produce righteousness in our lives. And it's a perfectly loving discipline. Unfortunately, we as parents are sometimes unloving in our discipline. How are we unloving? Well, a couple things here we see in God's Word. One example of unloving discipline is just a lack of discipline. Here's a couple verses you can write down. Uh, Proverbs 13:24, you may be well familiar with. Uh, Proverbs 13:24 says that the one who spares the rod hates his son. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 3. In 1 Samuel chapter 3, I'm just going to to look at that briefly. You don't need to turn there, but in 1 Samuel chapter 3, we see that the priest Eli had had sons and he was not dealing with them in a godly way. 1 Samuel chapter 3, the Lord is speaking to Samuel. Verse 10, the Lord came and stood, calling out other times, Samuel, Samuel, Samuel said, speak, Lord, your servant hears. And, and listen to what God says he's going to do to Eli. He says, behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day, I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish, I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew, because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Isn't that an amazing verse? Uh, Eli knew that his sons were blaspheming God. And Eli, as their father, did not restrain them from that blasphemy. The hearts of our children are naturally pagan hearts. And as parents, we have the obligation to restrain those hearts, restrain the excesses of that heart that desire to rebel against God. And a lack of discipline, a lack of discipline is an unloving thing to do. In 1 Samuel chapter 3, we see that Eli's sons are going to be wiped off the face of the earth, all his lineage, because of their blasphemy against God. And We as parents have a solemn obligation before God if we truly love our children to train within them hearts that love God. So it's unloving to discipline too little. Here's the hard thing for me as a parent. Unfortunately, it's also unloving to what? Discipline too much, to be overbearing in our discipline. Hebrews chapter 13, we've looked at. Note that it's it's what we're doing is what's best for them in love. That's the type of discipline we're we're giving them. Colossians 3 is a parallel passage to Ephesians chapter 6, and it talks about not becoming angry with your children lest they become discouraged. And so a parent that's that's nitpicky, a parent that's constantly disciplining, a, a parent that's that's constantly saying mean things about their kid, or or never a kid that can never do anything right for this parent, that's an, an overbearing parent. It's a parent that's a discouraging parent. You can imagine how discouraging it would be in, in your work situation if, co- if your boss was, was just constantly saying negative things about you. Or you know how terrible it is to be around a friend that's just negative on everything. It's, it's not a very fun place to live, a nice place to be. Parents are unloving when they're too lax in their discipline. Parents are unloving when they're too overbearing in their discipline, when there's too much discipline. Uh, parents are also unloving when they discipline in anger. James chapter 1, verses 19 and 20 are a verse that I, I'm constantly meditating on, just in life in general, but also as parenting and parenting. It says, let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Why? Listen to this. Because the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. And parents, you're in that situation where your child has just pushed your button for the last time. And you're like, nothing else has worked. It's anger time. And you just want to yell at that child, maybe this will get through to them. Look, a heart of anger, the anger of man, does not achieve the righteousness of God. If your goal in parenting is to achieve the righteousness of God in the heart of your child, anger will not accomplish that. Human anger will not accomplish that. It's also unloving to be inconsistent in discipline, to be inconsistent in discipline. Ecclesiastes 8.11 says, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. So parents are inconsistent in, in many ways, and, and I, I can think of a lot of examples just, just personally <laughs> of inconsistency. Uh, a parent might be inconsistent this way. A A child is is taking a ball and throwing it against the wall. Taking the ball, throwing it against the wall. You come in, you see your kid doing that. Hasn't really damaged anything. Hey, hey, uh, let's not do that, all right? Okay, Dad. Same child, same ball, same action, but this time the ball slips just a little bit and breaks the window. Now what's the response of the parent? Oh, you would have thought that the kid j- just murdered someone in your living room, okay? It's severe punishment for the exact same offense. The only thing that's different is that the consequences affect you more personally now. Kids running around the table, hey, stop running around the table. That's the discipline. Kids running around the table, knocks over water. Big discipline now. It's, inconsistence, it's inconsistency that kind of confuses your child same thing I was doing yesterday, didn't say anything, now it's this severe thing. Or being inconsistent in the way that you have a a double standard for for two different children. Or uh, having a double standard for your your child and yourself. A child breaks their toy and stomps their foot and slams the door. Hey, in our house, we do not throw fits of anger. Do you understand? Yes, yes, daddy. Next morning... You're looking for your keys, can't find them. You're slamming doors, you're slamming drawers, you're stomping your foot. Inconsistency, double standards for yourself and your child. All those are aspects of unloving discipline. You know, I think the answer, of course, we want to strive for loving discipline, we want to strive for consistency in our discipline, but at the same time, you know what we have to do as parents a lot of times? We just have to simply ask for forgiveness. Hey, you know, uh, kids, Daddy yesterday, or a few minutes ago, acted in a way that's wrong. And you're disciplined for acting that way, and and Daddy needs to ask for forgiveness for acting that way as well. Sometimes your kids will ask, well, who's going to discipline you? God. Okay. (laughs) Fair enough. Unloving discipline is a way that a parent can be provocative. Another way that a parent is provocative, provocative parents, number three, train their children to be legalists. Provocative parents train their children to be legalists. This is very, very important, I believe, for us as Sunday school teachers. It's important for us as parents. It's important for all of us to understand the danger of training a child legalistically. I want you to to turn to Matthew. We looked at this this, this passage last week, but turn to Matthew chapter 15. We're going to look at Matthew 15, and we're going to look at a passage in Hebrews 3 as well, as we think about this idea of of legalism and and training a child to be legalistic. Remember, we we talked about this two weeks ago as we're talking about parents and honoring our mom and dad, and we we talked about the, the heart of a true honoring the Pharisees have come to Jesus, and they, they've, they've talked to him about, about hand-washing. Why don't your disciples wash hands in the same way that we wash hands? And, and Jesus says, look, uh, you guys got it all wrong. Verse 3, you're the ones breaking the commandment. Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and mother, and whoever re- reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say... If anyone tells his father or his mother what you would have gained from me is given to God, as Corbin, uh, he he need not honor his father. So, for the the sake of your tradition, for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. Parents, we must be very careful that we do not train our children first of all to obey our. Our household rules as if they were the same as as God's rules. We have to make a distinction. Look, this is what God tells us to do in his word. Here's how mom and dad are applying it at home. And, And secondly, he goes on here. He says, you hypocrites, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines, the commandments of men. Mom and dad, it is entirely possible that you could raise a child who's very comfortable being a heathen in the house of God, who's comfortable with singing the songs, who knows how to get to the, the, the right Bible passage, who knows the chapter and verses, can, can recite all the Rwanda verses, a, a heart, but, but, but the child has a heart that is far from God, that has a passion for the things of this world instead of having a heart that's been nurtured To love God. Let's look at Hebrews 3 as well. Hebrews 3, we we see another thing that for those of us who love our children and desire them to have hearts that that love God, it's a passage that should strike some, some fear as we read it. Hebrews chapter 3. The writer of Hebrews is talking about people who rebelled against God in the wilderness. And he he says this in verse 12, great passage for parents. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, for we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm unto the end. Verse 15, as it is said today, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. The danger for us as parents, in fact, think about what what the writer of Hebrews has been saying in the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews was written to people who had no profession, no, no, wouldn't make no profession of, the, of faith in Jesus Christ. They made no claims to be Christian. They were, they were Jews, and they were, were proud of being Jews, but they were comfortable being around other Christians. And then there was also a group that were there in the church that were believers, and so Hebrews is addressed to them as well. But it's also addressed to another group that I find very frightening this third group is a group that was a part of the church, apparently, had made some profession of being a follower of Christ, and yet their hearts did not truly place their faith in Jesus Christ. They were, they were comfortable with all the trappings of Christianity, but their hearts had become hardened to the gospel. And parents, none of us, none of us can, can force our children to become Christians, you know, we can't sit down with, with them and say, okay, pray after me. Dear Jesus, dear Jesus, please forgive me my sins. We, we, can't, we can't force a heart to believe in Jesus Christ. We just simply can't do it. I've tried. No. But what we can do is to monitor the heart condition of our children. And to see the the behavior that's flowing out, instead of trying to produce these these robot children, our our goal is to to get at the heart and say, okay, what are you really thinking about this? And, And to discipline negative heart attitudes that will become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin and keep that heart as soft as possible to the teaching of Jesus Christ so that they can place their faith in the person of Jesus Christ. Do not harden your hearts, he says. You hear his voice, and here's the danger, mom and dad. The danger is that our children would not understand grace. That their hearts would begin to become very hardened as they pursue righteousness based upon their own works. Our children must understand God's grace. They must understand that a person becomes acceptable to to God not on the basis of their own righteousness, but that a person becomes acceptable to God only on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ. And that a person who places their faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins receives a righteousness from God. And we as parents have to be extremely careful to communicate a moralistic message. Sunday school teachers, you must be incredibly careful not to communicate a moralistic message. That is, if you want to be found acceptable before God, share your toys. If you want to be found acceptable before God, be a nice person. How do we do that sometimes as parents? Kids yell at each other. Guys, don't yell at each other. Five minutes later, they're yelling at each other. Guys, did you hear me? I said, don't yell. Stop doing that. Three minutes later, they're yelling at each other again. What are you doing? What's going, can't you guys stop doing that? You know what? They can't. They can't stop doing it any more than you can start doing. stop doing it. The way that we, the way that we change, according to Ephesians, is we place our faith in Jesus Christ, and then there's this process of, of God changing us. And our children must understand, they must understand God's grace that it is God's grace alone that allows them to pursue a holy life. And so, no, you know what? They can't stop hitting their brother on their own strength. They can't stop being angry on their own strength. You may be able to modify behavior, but you can't have true heart change apart from the grace of God at work in a person's heart. A provocative parent trains their child to be a legalist, these are the what. You, this is what you do. This is what you don't do. If you do these things, you're good. If you don't do these things, you're bad. If you're not doing these things, why aren't you doing them? Why aren't you doing them? Why aren't you doing them? A parent who's shepherding their child is getting at the heart, teaching them about God's grace. We'll talk more about that in two weeks. When I was disciplining my children, originally uh, with, with Hannah, we, we and we'll talk about this again in two weeks about about spanking. We we do practice. Uh, biblical spanking. A lot of what people call spanking is not biblical. We practice at times biblical spanking in our house. And uh, I used to say, uh, you know, I I don't want to do this, but I'm doing this so that you learn to obey. I don't say that anymore because I don't think that's the the best way to word it. What I say is this, look, Daddy's doing this so that your heart will change and so that we can ask God together to help you be obedient to Him. So, discipline in our house, no matter what the discipline, always includes a prayer, asking God to help our hearts change. It includes me praying for them as well. Uh, fourthly, uh, the fourth thing here that a provocative, par- pro- provocative parents do, provocative parents do not foster a relationship with their children. Provocative parents do not foster a relationship with their children. Deuteronomy 6 Verses four through nine is known as the Shema, hero Israel. The Lord our God is one God, the Lord our God is one, and he talks about loving God, and he talks about training their children in, in all sorts of different circumstances in life. A parent who's a provocative parent is all about rules. A, pers- a parent who's not a provocative parent is intent on developing a relationship with their child. Because quite frankly, what, what's the bottom line? The bottom line is that I am going to fail on a daily basis at being a parent. Remember, we talked about being a loving parent, not not disciplining too much, not disciplining too little. You know, daily I pray, God help me, help me determine that balance. And you know, every day I feel like the pendulum went one way or the other. I'm like, man, I I was way too lax today. Or wow, I was I was way too strict. I, I'm so glad I didn't have me as a dad. A pendulum just seems to swing back and forth on some days. But what I hope that my children understand, even whenever they, they, they know that dad is not the perfect parent, they know, man, dad really loves me. And we have a relationship. And yeah, there, there's some times that dad fails me, but, but he asks for forgiveness when he knows that he's done wrong. And, and there's a, a relationship here that I, I can trust him and depend upon him. In fact, uh. Kids, cover your ears here for a second. Um, we, we talked to our kids about this this last week, about if we're too strict or too, you know, what, what do mom, are mommy and daddy too strict or are we not strict enough? Do we discipline you too much or not enough? You know, it's great to have young kids. Uh, they don't know. They don't know what bad parents we are at this point. They're, they're too, now, as they get older, they're going to know. But they said, no, you guys are perfect, you know. You have it just right. We don't. We know we don't. But you know why they think that? Good job. Um, relationship. It's relationship. I'm gonna fail. I'm gonna fail. God's grace, right? God's grace is gonna enable that relationship to be there so they can understand his grace and they can understand the love that he has for them. Fifth thing that, a provocative, that provocative parents do, uh, provocative parents prov- provocative parents fail to practice age-appropriate parenting. You just write down 1 Corinthians 13.11, Hebrews chapter 5, uh, talk about, the, about maturity. There's a time that a child progresses in maturity that allows us to, to back off a little bit on the parenting. When they're young, there's high-level involvement as they become older. There's lower levels of involvement. Uh, a parent who's provocative fails to understand that, that right balance. A teen, I was listening to the radio this last week, maybe you guys heard this as well. Um, there was a radio host that was talking about her teenage children. And she said, uh, Teenage children uh, really want boundaries. I thought, you know what? I don't know if that's true or not. I think that may actually be wrong. I think a lot of times, uh, in their, she said, you know, they may tell you they don't, but in their deepest heart, they really want rules. You know what? I don't know. Maybe. I think what happens is that as you force rules upon a teenager, <laughs> the appropriate rules, what happens is this, they begin to eventually see the benefits of them. And not, maybe by the time they're 20 or 21, they wanted the rules that you put in place. But I don't know if they always, in that circumstance, in that situation, want that. What happens is this a parent who practices age-appropriate parenting doesn't base it upon what the child wants that the child was doesn't want it bases it upon their maturity and their ability to handle things and slowly begins to train them to be a, a person who loves jesus christ that's our goal right that's our goal those are some characteristics of provocative provocative parents you know, this really just is the tip of the iceberg, and, and I, hope, I hope you're not overwhelmed if you're a parent. I hope you're not thinking, man, I, I, I'm, I'm a provocative parent in every single one of these ways, and the, the truth is you probably are. Uh, you probably are. We probably all are. But God's grace enables us, and we're going to look at this again in two weeks, God's grace enables us still to, to train and to nurture our children to, to love God. The Athenians and Spartans had, had radically different perceptions of what education involved. Even if you think about the people in this room, uh, many of us are making uh, vastly different decisions about what we do with our children just as far as school goes. Uh, some are homeschooling. Uh, some are involved in the public school system. Some some private school. And, and so there's a lot of variables in why people decide to do different things with their kid. I'm convinced that there's not a, a wrong answer. I'm convinced, well, actually, I'm convinced that they're all wrong answers. Um, but I'm convinced there's not a wrong answer for a per, per parent as they go before the Lord and the Lord directs them in different ways. But let me say this what's the common denominator of all of our parenting? It should be this. We don't care, ultimately, if our kid doesn't make the best score on the SAT or the ACT. Uh, we don't care if they're the worst runner in their class. We don't care. They get the best-paying job. They become the CEO of a company. All those things are inconsequential ultimately to us. What we care about as parents, what our passion as parents is, do our kids love Jesus Christ? And have I done everything I can to communicate to them how important Jesus Christ is? Have I done everything I can to nurture within them a heart that loves him And church, do we rightly understand, do we rightly understand that it is the obligation of every single one of us in here who are believers, who are part of this community of faith, to come alongside parents, to serve in the nursery, to serve in children's church, or to serve in whatever way God calls you, to help nurture children of faith. I pray that we understand that. I pray that we as a church would not be a church that provokes children to wrath by not loving them, by not nurturing them. I pray that God gives us the grace to parent, to shepherd these precious ones. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our children we thank you that we're a church that, that has just a, an abundance of these, these little ones, and Lord, help us to be good stewards of, of these. Help us to know what it is you desire us to do, and it's very overwhelming sometimes to, to think about the enormity of the task you've called us to. We pray for your grace, and as you give us the grace to raise children of faith, we give you all the glory. We pray this in your Son, Jesus' name, amen. Amen.